This morning's scripture passage is from James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from uh, this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, is how the Apostle Paul greeted the church in Galatia. But let me just greet y'all this morning by saying, what's good, y'all? Y'all doing all right? Man, I am I, incredibly grateful for uh, the privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, Greensboro is a city I have a great affinity for. Um, a part of my story uh, includes the fact that I taught at Eastern Guilford Middle School for a little while. So Greensboro is a city that I've uh, really come to love. But one of the, the things, especially as a pastor uh, to college students, that makes Greensboro special is its story of how uh, its students have been uh, active throughout the years uh, in community activism. And I believe that that reason is because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who motivates us uh, to work to see uh, the radical change that cities like Greensboro needs. So let's pray, and we're going to jump right into God's word this morning. Father, we thank you that even in a world that seems immersed in chaos, that we can turn to you for what a friend we have in Jesus. All of our sins and griefs to bear, and, and what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And know what peace we often forfeit. And know what needless pain we bear, all because we do not take everything to God in prayer? And have we trials and temptations, and is there trouble anywhere? Should we not be discouraged? Because we have the privilege to take it all to God in prayer. 
And we pray this morning, trusting you, Lord, to be faithful to your promise to never leave or forsake us. As even in our weakness, you are faithful and true. And now, Father, as I, with a heart of humility, preach your word, I ask that you would allow me to preach with boldness and with clarity, that it would not return void, but empowered by your spirit, it would bless us and transform us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of James is an incredibly intriguing book. Uh, Much of that intrigue, though, is because of the audience to whom James writes. As uh, Christians who were in the middle of immense suffering, uh, they had come to know uh, great violence, the loss of homes and livelihoods, and James' message to this people is around this issue of true uh, faith. Uh, No, uh, the suffering that they experienced was was not something that was a trivial waste of time, um, but it was the means of maturation to mature in our faith in Christ Jesus. This particular passage in James, though, is by far the most controversial. Uh, As we read this text uh, through a reform lens, having come to understand that our saving faith in Jesus comes through faith alone, by grace alone, and in Christ alone, and called to live for his glory alone, we got to ask, how could James say stuff like this? I hope you'll, you'll find today that James isn't much concerned with disputing our theological claims, but he's calling us to a reasoned faith as those who identify themselves as faithful followers of Jesus. To be recognized not simply because of what it is that we say, but to live, to live fruitful, gospel-centered lives of faith in Jesus. This is what we describe as a centered life of faith and work. In verse 14, we read, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but not, does not have works? Can that faith save him? See, James' question is one that is intended to be uh, a both practical and rhetorical in nature. It is a question of goodness and analysis of not only the usefulness of faith, but a call to confrontation with both its meaning and its purpose. James is a pastor who is primarily concerned with the spiritual reality of his people. So he's about edification. So this question is best understood as a question of faith and how it shapes us and grows us in our walk with Jesus. Notice, though, that James references his audience as my brothers. He's making this clear distinction that he is addressing the Christian community. God's household of faith, I want you to be clear, includes both you and I as people shaped by the gospel. What is faith, though? The author of Hebrews says that faith is uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is forward thinking. It is resting on the assurances promised 
in God's word without the ability to deceive them in front of you. So the world would call this foolish. And yet for the Christian, this is essential. It's foundational to all that we believe and we see it practiced throughout scripture. The prophet Isaiah was forward thinking and come in the coming of a suffering servant. One we see fulfilled in places like John three sixteen, as it is in God's great love for us that he gave his son. Faith, though, is described as assurance. Assurance, uh, the dictionary uh, defines as the state of being in a certain mind or the confidence of mind or manner. The easy freedom from self-doubt or uncertainty. Uh, I love how Webster also then gives us this example. It says the Puritan's assurance of salvation. I saw this as I studied for this message, and I realized it's not often that preachers get set up this easy. Uh, But I will say this, that the Puritans believed that assurance was the development of a distinguished faith. And why is this important then? Because uh, for the Puritans, there couldn't be any doubt in true faith. So get this assurance for the Puritans is the faith that stems from the salvation on which faith is its essence. Verse 15 and 16, it says, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? And I just lovingly as your brother just say that if this verse is true, there's a lot of repentance needed in this room. It begins with me. How often do we drive around our city and see people standing on the corners? We're living in deplorable conditions and we turn our hearts away. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this, that we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or are meant to do and more in the light of what they suffer. The story of the scriptures is the story of a compassionate God at work to redeem a people completely incapable of redeeming themselves, and yet the church is far from reflecting this truth to the world. The church, the place that should be the gathering of the, those known for its love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, I can assure you that is not the reputation of the church. As a minister to college students, I was blown away within my very first year by one real reality. I, I came to campus with this idea that the the most common objection uh, to the gospel would be uh, around some scientific ideas. It would be philosophical. No, the truth is the most common objection that I received from students was, 
I don't want to be a part of that. We've got to move past standing idly by, watching people suffer, and learn to show them the love and compassion of Jesus. Or are we going to continue to just tell them, as the scripture says, to go in peace, to be warmed up in our shelters, to have just a hot meal, only to send them back into suffering? Or then, are we so compelled that the gospel is true that we'd ask, what good is that? Will we rid ourselves of our idols of comfort and privilege to be committed to meeting the needs of others, even when it costs us something? Verse 17 says, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't, does not have works, is dead. I love this verse because it's almost as James is suggesting that in case uh, you hadn't realized it yet, uh, in the clearest possible explanation, he says, faith all by itself, if it does not have works, is deader than a weekend at Bernie's. If you're old enough to remember that. Verse 18, though, says, but someone will say, you, you have faith and I have works, so show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So I, I love the question that James uses here because uh, he wants to immediately dismiss uh, the common notion that faith and works are mutually exclusive. And he does this by using himself as an example. Uh, James' uh, original audience would have known likely uh, much of his story. Uh, James was uh, Jesus's little brother. Uh, and in Matthew 12 is the story of Mary, the, the mother of Jesus and the brothers of Jesus, which would have included James. They show up and they show up because uh, they've heard much about what Jesus has has begun to teach. And if we replace this then in context, know that they showed up uh, because they had come to hear that there was great controversy that Jesus was causing. Spurgeon, the, the great Baptist preacher, said that the members of Jesus' family had come to take him because uh, they had come to think of him being beside himself. Uh, in other words, uh, they thought Jesus at this point had completely lost it. It's this same James that believed that his brother was beside himself. In Matthew 12, who is now not only uh, the pastor of this church, but had come to know his big brother as the Lord and Savior of his life. And was now at work by faith to point others to him. James was a witness to the truth of Jesus coming to earth, being born of the Virgin Mary, living a perfectly sinless life, having obeyed God the Father in every way, and yet on the cross he paid the penalty of sin that you and I deserve. He imputed his righteousness to us that, 
those who by faith believe in him might see the promise of an eternity with him fulfilled. That we might rule and reign with him as he has accomplished salvation. A salvation that we could not obtain ourselves. As we look at the next verse, verse 19, I think is an extremely helpful reminder that often the pastoral epistles uh, are, like James here, are written with specific people in mind, um, but also to address specific circumstances within the life of the church. Verse 19, I believe to be a primary example of this. So the you that we see here, while it does have implications for the general audience, I'm sure probably is intended to address uh, a specific person or a mindset that was growing among the people in the church. So James says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. I know there might be some of us who have yet to profess faith in Jesus, and I'm grateful you are here. I believe that the church should be a place to come and explore the truthfulness of the scriptures. And and while the whole Jesus thing might be difficult, I I, got to understand to some degree that this discussion around demons has to be a bit of a stretch further. Just on a really practical level, though, I think you and I can agree that each year uh, we watch a ridiculous amount of money being spent to discover new life forms. And while it's pretty entertaining, it's honestly also pretty fruitless. Christians do believe that there are other uh, life forms, uh, so to speak, that do exist, but not in a Star Trek kind of way. Uh, but rather, we believe that there are spiritual beings. This would be the realm, so to speak, in, in which God himself exists, but also then would be the place in which Satan and his demons exist too. This understanding helps give categories to a God at work in the sanctification of his people, but also then the reality that we have a very real enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. It is because Satan is the true enemy, enemy of humanity that many come to see life as contaminated and destroyed and ruined and defiled, filling us with the lies that life is hopeless and full of despair. And though Satan and demons and the scriptures teach that they are real, it is also then clear in the scriptures that we serve a God that is far greater. And while it's true that Satan and the demons have an irreversible destiny, know that much of their work is simply just to convince you that the same is true for you. Despite the truth that Christ Jesus has come to give us an abundant life. It's by this abundant life that James calls us to live by faith, shown in our works. The terminology used by James here in the original languages, though, reflects the the kind of fear that leads to physical trembling. So it's this paralyzing fear that that you can do absolutely nothing but stand there and tremble. 
I'd be remiss with my background as an educator not to point out the reality that is written here in the verb that is written in the indicative, which suggests that there is perpetual motion that is taking place. Uh, So know, though, uh, that the subjugation of Satan and the demons to Jesus is not something from of old. It's not something that is going to come at some point in the future. But Jesus is sovereign. He rules and reigns above it all right now. He always has and he always will. So, fam, if if Satan and the demons, even in their catastrophic fall and rebellion against God, know to live in the fearfulness of him and that they can't escape it. How much more are we called to live walking by faith, demonstrating a, a centered life of faith and works? Look, finally, then with me at verses 20 through 26. They share one essential thought. So it reads, it says, uh, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers And sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. See, James uses here the stories of Abraham and Rahab as examples of what it means to live a centered life of faith and works. James using these examples from the Old Testament scriptures are a beautiful example of how scripture testifies to itself. And James uses Abraham's story from Genesis 15 and 6. It's the text that, that speaks about Abraham, how Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, to those not familiar with Abraham's story, uh, James is referring to uh, this experience of covenant between God and Abraham. And the promise of the covenant is for a family that God shows Abraham will outnumber the stars in the sky. And what's unique about this, though, is that God makes this promise to him well after the age that Abraham and his wife would have been, you know, it generally just wouldn't worked out well. Abraham believed God, though. James goes on beyond quoting Genesis, though, uh, to give this reference to Abraham because he goes on to add that Abraham is called a friend of God. And a few chapters later in Genesis 18, God makes the decision to destroy Sodom. And Abraham knows he has some family there. And so Abraham begins to intercede for them in this 
discussion and we see not only though is there this bargaining going on, but we are seeing the reality of an intimate relationship. Abraham is not just the servant of God, but he is a friend of God. Jesus in John 15 calls you and I to the same friendship. He says, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Rahab is the second example of one who lives a centered life of faith and works. And yet something must be said about her because Rahab was generally the member of the family that nobody talked about much. Rahab had one of those jobs that didn't make her the role model for most of the young ladies of her day. But it's also then a remarkable reminder that God has always used the broken and unrefined to bring about his glory. Yeah, we don't have many Rahabs in church membership today. Rahab, even in the middle of her mess, nominal faith and all, just had just enough faith to know that God is true and righteous. And so when the men of God come to her for help, she had the faith to believe that God would protect her to protect her and her family. She gives shelter to the men of God in the face of her life being threatened. But this is not the end of Rahab's story. Because we see Rahab again in Matthew's record of Jesus' family tree. Rahab, the prostitute, who somehow managed to live a life centered on faith and works, find herself in the very lineage of the one who had come to save us. James concludes this passage, though, with this thought saying, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the restatement of James' intended outcome to to grind out the reality of faith and works by simply stating that just as a body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Let me just close this morning by just asking you, are you living a centered life of faith and works? No church, that faith begins with trusting the finished work of Christ as the all-sufficient sacrifice that turns away the righteous wrath of God that you and I so rightly deserve. To live a centered life of faith and works is to put on full display the glorious beauty of our risen Savior. Or maybe we could say it 
a bit more poetically, like faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith will keep you when your way seems dark. Faith can move mountains. Faith can open the fountain. Oh, faith can help you succeed. Oh, faith can supply your every need. So where is your faith in God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word for us this morning. For your call to live a life centered on faith and works. Father, I pray for my friends with us that they would be the catalyst for change that this city needs because of their commitment to faith and works. Would you, by your spirit, strengthen and encourage them? Would you motivate them? Would you give them a holy discontent with the sin reflected around us? that you would be at work in them and through them for your glory and the good of this city. I thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.